You got to recognize that your party is bigger than what you think it is. And it includes more people than you may ever know. So there are pro-life Democrats just as there are pro-choice Democrats. There are pro-choice Republicans just as there are pro-life Republicans. And as a chairman, if you don't recognize that, you will fail. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Michael Steele is the former chair of the Republican National Committee. Today, he joins the leader of the Democratic National Committee for a conversation about finding common ground. Aspen Ideas to Go is a weekly show that features compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. In this era of deep partisanship, how can understanding be found on Capitol Hill and among family and friends? As part of the Aspen Institute's Washington Ideas Roundtable series, Michael Steele joins Tom Perez to discuss how we can overcome our differences. Perez chairs the Democratic National Committee. He's a former U.S. Labor Secretary, and he served as Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights at the Justice Department. Michael Steele was Maryland's Lieutenant Governor and now runs the Steele Group. Their conversation is moderated by Mickey Edwards, a former Republican congressman and current vice president of the Aspen Institute. Here's Edwards. Tom and Mike are good friends of each other. They're good friends of mine. They're good friends of the Aspen Institute. They, to me, represent the very best in what American politics can be. And so I am, I'm really excited to have you both here Thank together. You. Great to be here. Um, Great to be here. Tom and Mike, I don't care you know, which of you answers first. I mean, you, you can actually, uh, we can fight it out. That could be the very first uh, fight you... Uh, well, he's the did. one with titles, uh, so he should... Uh, yeah, first. yeah. I'm so, just former, so that's the best title in D.C. You, we all want our friends to do well. And we don't want our friends to find themselves in a mess. I cannot imagine why either of you took on these jobs as national chairman. So the, um, you're in a situation here where there are great divisions and nasty divisions between the two political parties. There are very sharp divisions within your party that uh, cause people in your party to be looking over their shoulder constantly. Are you, are you seen compromising? Are you seen uh, searching for the common good? You're going to get in trouble. Uh, money, which you both have to worry about, raising money for the political party, money more and more goes not to the parties, but to special interest groups trying to influence the elections. So just talk a little bit about the challenge of being a national party chairman and, and what you have to deal with and how you can make your party relevant and make it work and make it work you know, for the good of the country. How do you do that? How, how do you look at this job you've got? You want to go first, Tom? Sure. Thanks. Michael uh, was my friend in Maryland. Michael continues to be my friend. Yeah. And uh, we have a lot of good conversations. That doesn't mean we don't have disagreements of significance. Uh, we do. Uh, but we understand the importance of that dialogue. You asked the question, why, why would I have done such a seemingly crazy thing? Yeah, nutty, uh, and, nutty, and, actually. And, you know, for me, uh, this was a where, I really believe this is a where were you moment, and I say this all respectfully. Uh, yeah. I woke up November the 8th assuming that uh, there was going to be a different outcome, that uh, Hillary Clinton would be elected, and uh, that we would have a different pathway. Uh, President Obama inherited a mess. 
things got better. There was still unfinished business, and I was hoping that Hillary Clinton could take this nation to the next level. And we all know what happened. And so for me, it was a where were you moment. Uh, I actually think uh, being out there now is even more important. And, and the question that I asked is, how could I make the biggest difference? What I love the most about working at the Labor Department and the Justice Department is you got to help people at scale. You know, when you, when you pass a regulation that helps uh, two million home health workers, mostly women of color on food stamps, get access to minimum wage and overtime protections, that for me is the definition of a good week. When you are the successful chair of a party and you can help build strong parties in all 50 states so that you can elect people who share your vision and they can do good things at scale, whether they're the mayor, whether they're on the county council, whether they're in the state senate, whether they're in the U.S. Senate. Uh, that, for me, is the definition of a good, uh, a good week. And uh, we have to be honest with ourselves as Democrats. We, we have... Not only, we not only uh, didn't prevail in the November election, but when you look back at the last uh, 10 years, we've lost roughly 900 seats in state legislatures. We had 60 Democrats in the Senate when Barack Obama took office. We have 48 now. Uh, we had 30 or so governors in uh, 09. We're in the teens now. And the list goes on. And so when we build strong parties, when we build a strong Democratic Party, and when we build those strong partnerships, we elect Democrats who share that vision of opportunity for everyone and not just opportunity for a few. And that's why I decided to get in. And, um, and I am excited about being in because right now, I, I mean, I, I, was, I was a 14-year veteran at the Justice Department. I'm, I'm proud to tell you that I served as a career person under George Herbert Walker Bush and Bill Clinton. Our independence was our most important currency and when I see what's happening uh, today, when I, when I see a tweet today that uh, I used to prosecute um, obstruction of justice cases, and when I see things like that today, that's a, that's a threat to our democracy. And, and you know, the, the, the beauty of Watergate at the end was that Republicans and Democrats put nation above party. And, and so I got involved in this, Mickey, because I really do believe that this president um, is a dangerous person. And, and we need to make sure we have a strong Democratic Party. And when we build those strong parties, I think we can um, really make progress. Yeah, Michael, when you got into this also, you know, the, it was when at a time when, when the Republican Party was starting to become two parties, you know, uh, even more Still so is. than the, the Bernie. <laughs> yeah, so, so, I mean, you yeah. really were taking on something that... Uh, was falling apart. Let's, yeah, it, yeah, it was. Uh, first off, thanks again, Mickey. It's, uh, it's good to be back with you and to be a part of the Aspen family. Uh, really enjoy uh, these conversations and to, to hang out with my buddy over here, which we go back to our days in, in Maryland. And, and it really is about, I mean, the one thing, if you're going to look at what we have in common, um, besides the, our, our hairstyles and, and things <laughs> or like lack that, thereof. Um, <laughs> is that we're, we're grassroots guys. Uh, and we fundamentally come from that space where real people live out their lives every day. Um, he has a different philosophical, Tom has a different mm -hmm. philosophical approach at, at how to best enhance and help and be a part of uh, those communities of people who grow and prosper. 
um, my <laughs> view is, is, is different as well. And that's, that's the sweet spot where you go to compete around ideas and policy uh, and things like that. So that, for me, has always been a foundational idea. I learned that growing up in Washington, D.C. This is my home. I grew up in Petworth. Uh, and one of the things I learned very early in life that you have to be uh, not just smart about your goals and aspirations, but a little bit uh, fleet of foot, uh, particularly when you're a black Roman Catholic conservative growing up in Washington, D.C. <laughs> not the easiest thing in the world to do. Uh, but you also learn in, in those environments about people. So getting involved politically for me was something that began very early on and stayed with me. Uh, throughout my life. So the fortuitous opportunities to become Lieutenant Governor of Maryland and then to become uh, Chairman of the Republican National Committee uh, were not political opportunities for me, but they were an opportunity to, to Tom's point, to affect change real time on behalf of real people. So as Lieutenant Governor, to be able to put the, the, the machine of government to work uh, on behalf of people was a good day, a good week, a good month, a good year. Um, and we were able to do that. As party person, the opportunity uh, to involve communities of people politically. The one thing that always got me, well, there are a lot of things that got me in trouble when I was uh, chairman. Um, but the one thing that I could never really get people to really appreciate down to the core was this concept that at the end of the day, it's not about where you line up or what side you're on. It's that, that whatever field you decide to play on, you have full access to the field. And if the parties do their job the right way, you're going to get the recruits. You're going to get the converts. People will come to you. I don't need to go out and tell you, well, because you are a black uh, Sunday-going uh, you know, social conservative, that you should be a Republican, OK? And then what? Because when I look at these other things about your party, I'm not happy with what I see. Nor should I then look at a community and go, because you are a pro-life uh, or pro-choice person, you should be a Democrat or not be a Democrat. When we start putting these labels on people's uh, livelihoods, it becomes very difficult for parties to grow and be successful. And that's one of the things I learned very, very early on. Going into the Republican Party leadership for me was about making it relevant for people. Um, inheriting a party that had, uh, and you know this very well now, um, that has uh, a real sucky name brand uh, that, is, that is struggling internally with uh, factions. Um, your progressive wing that has emerged uh, is no different than the conservative right wing uh, wing that are, uh, emerged on the Republican side. So the challenge is how do you get everybody to play uh, in this, in, on this field in a way that you advance the ultimate cause of empowering people politically to engage and be a part of a process. Yeah, it's all about winning elections. We did a gr very good job in 2010, you know. We, I got about 763 of those 900 seats um, in 2010. But as I, as I look back on that, the question then becomes, what did we do with that? What did we learn from it? And that's the space we now find ourselves in and the challenge that both parties have to realize. So, but as things have developed more recently, uh, you've chosen to do those jobs 
from the top of the establishment, right? The head of the party. Uh, and uh, we, we had on the Democratic side <coughs> the virtual anointment of all the party leaders, uh, all, all the uh, establishment, that you know, Hillary Clinton was going to be the nominee. There was no question about that. Uh, then she spent the next year fending off an attack from somebody who wasn't even a Democrat. Uh, then you had on the Republican side, you, you had uh, you know somebody who had never been really a Republican, uh, and everybody knew it was going to be Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio, depending on you know which one won the Florida primary, and neither one of them came close. So, uh, does the party itself? Really, I mean, I, I see how you can really be an advocate for points of view, as, as you've both pointed out. <clears throat> but does the party itself in this age still retain the ability to shape what, what ends up on the ballot uh, representing the party? Uh, do people at the grassroots listen to, do they care what you think? Do they care what you think? <laughs> I mean, you know, are, are they going to do what they're going to do and thank you for whatever you can do to send support out here to wh whoever we finally choose? I mean, how does that work? Sure. I mean, we, we have an undeniable, and I think um, Michael referred to it. I, I don't know exactly the word you use, but if we were in a business school marketing class, we would talk about um, brand degradation. Right. Uh, we've done a lot of focus groups and, and, and house calls. Uh, I, I've been traveling the country, and I hear with frequency, I, you know, uh, what do you stand for? Uh, you know, you, you didn't show up in my community. You know, you can't show up every 4th October in my church and call that an organizing strategy. Or I feel politically homeless. These are all direct quotes from real people that I met. And I understand moving forward as a Democratic Party that we have to do a better job of articulating what we stand for. You know, we are the party that has always stood for what Ted Kennedy called uh, the common man and the common woman, making sure that people have access to economic security. We were always and continue to be, and that's the reason we're the longest party, I think, in the history of our nation, a, a party that embraces everyone, regardless of where you were born, regardless of uh, who you worship, regardless of who you love, regardless of your, your first language. And, and, and what I've been trying to do and what others have been trying to do is to make sure we put our values into action, Mickey, because there's this tremendous energy across America. There are all of these uh, groups that have been emerging. I mean, Donald Trump has been a uniter on, in one sense because January 20th was important, undeniably, but in my mind, January 21st was far more important. You know, women across this country in the millions came together and you, you see this unity expressed in so many different ways. And so the challenge for the Democratic Party is to work in partnership with um, all of these allies. Uh, you know, the, the fight against the um, repeal of the Affordable Care Act isn't simply Democrats. I mean, Republicans have pre-existing conditions. Democrats have pre-existing conditions. Independents have pre-existing conditions. And, and those town hall meetings that, you know, in Utah and elsewhere, those weren't paid... Uh, political operatives there, those were organically arranged and, and, and coming together people who were about to lose their livelihood and, and potentially their lives. And, and, and so I think a big part of what we have to do, Mickey, is uh, lead with our values, demonstrate who we are, and, and, and not in a Bigfoot way. Not, this isn't Al Haig. You know? This is about us 
uh, being there in partnership. And that's what we've been trying to do. I mean, there's a... Um, uh, I met with an indivisible uh, group in uh, Phoenix when I was out there yet, uh, recently, and I knew a lot of the folks there because Phoenix, you know, Arizona is a full employment act for civil rights lawyers between Joe Arpaio and Jan Brewer and, and other things. And, uh, and, and, the, and, and what impressed me the most about that meeting was the energy in the room and the unity of purpose. And when we lead with our values and when we're a conspicuous presence on issues that keep people up at night, that's how I think we uh, earn that trust back. Trust isn't something you're given. It's something you have to earn. And a lot of folks um, have uh, lost trust in, in the party, and that's what we're out to do is to make sure we earn that trust through our actions, and whether it's the Affordable Care Act repeal efforts, whether it's immigration, whether it's fighting for good jobs and good wages and, and, and stemming this um, so-called skinny budget, which is, I think, morally bankrupt in so many ways. We, we are a compassionate nation. We're a strong nation because we're compassionate. And I think we can afford to fund Meals on Wheels uh, and legal services and other services, workforce services. And, and so when we're doing that, Mickey, I think that's when we're at our best. But we have undeniable work to do in, in re-earning that trust um, in rural, in urban, suburban pockets of this nation. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Today's conversation about finding common ground features former RNC Chairman Michael Steele and DNC Chairman Tom Perez. Aspen Institute Vice President Mickey Edwards is moderating. Later in the show, voters are increasingly disappointed by candidates who win an election but then don't follow through on campaign promises. Could voter dismay lead to the emergence of a third party? Find our show on iTunes, Google Play, NPR One, and Sirius XM's Insight Channel. Here's Mickey Edwards. So the, the two questions that come to my mind in that regard are, uh, is there in that process, is there a litmus test for, for you know, who fits within this uh, the scenario? Uh, and the second is, uh, who will make that ultimate decision about who you are? Will it be uh, who the establishment wants or who the grassroots choose and say, okay, now that defines the party? So well, you, 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 you were so much more polite about that than the way, the way I was going to <laughs> respond. Um, Go for the, it, Mike. Here's the problem with what the chairman just said. It's not reality. Uh, and let me tell you what, I don't know if you've had this experience yet, but here's a little taste of the reality I had a month into my job. So I'm down in Florida meeting with grassroots activists and donors. In the morning, I'm meeting with a group of people who tell me that the most important thing I need to do as chairman of the Republican Party is to, to be the leader on the fight uh, against gay marriage, uh, to, to be the leader, the party needs to lead in the fight uh, on abortion, the party needs to uh, make very clear uh, our social conservative values and principles. We need to be strong advocates for the Second Amendment. You know the litany. You know the list. Literally, three hours later, I'm in a meeting in the afternoon, and I'm told 
that as party chairman, the party needs to be focused not on those social issues, but on the economy and growth and jobs. Two very different meetings, two different group of people who will stand up and swear on a stack of Bibles that they are card-carrying, hard-charging conservative Republicans who have very two different views of their party and their country. That was the precursor to what we saw play out in 2016. So in a microcosm, in that moment, you can wax poetic about what we should do, but the reality is ultimately going to rest with what the people want to do. And the challenge for a party chairman and the challenge for a national party is to recognize that that's not where the action is, where you are. The action is in every individual community. And what you have to try to do, and I think this is why we were successful in 2010, is to link those communities with a common thought, a common theme. Now, for me, it was not challenging Barack Obama. Despite the fact that I had every brother and sister in the world coming at me going, you need to talk about Barack Obama. I'm like, Barack Obama's not our fight. Our fight is a little bit closer to the ground. We, some things we can nationalize, other things we can't. But we gotta recognize where the fight is. We have, to, we, have to, we have to understand, thank you, I got this up. We have to understand exactly what we have to do on the ground, because the ground is where the action is, all right? So what we did was we nationalized, in a sense, Nancy Pelosi, all right? Because everybody relates to their congressman close to the ground. And what you do is you make the argument a little bit more personal. You make it a little bit closer to where people are. We had, I would go into communities and I would just say to people, if you want a better dog, dog catcher, if you want trash pickup service, fire Nancy Pelosi. All right. So in, in other words, you bring it, you bring it into a, a, an area because the president was the president. And this is the mistake you guys are going to make. I'm just giving you a little advice. You may not want it. <laughs> Focus all day if you want on Donald Trump. And you will lose. Because that means you're not listening to what people are saying. So, Chairman, you just had uh, uh, that, that reality hit you on the abortion question. Because everything you're saying, you want to reach out to folks, then if you, if you say that in the one breath, and this was the challenge I really much tried to avoid, you got to recognize that your party is bigger than what you think it is. And it includes more people than you may ever know who come to your table with a whole lot of ish that's important to them. So there are pro-life Democrats just as there are pro-choice Democrats. There are pro-choice Republicans just as there are pro-life Republicans. And as a chairman, if you don't recognize that, you will fail. And you've got, just as I learned in that, in those two conversations in Florida, and I finally had, at a cocktail reception that evening, got groups, members from each of those groups in the same room. So we're standing around, we're having drinks. And it occurred to me as I was listening to their conversation, ah, here we go. So I said to one who was all about the pro-life and you know the conservative, I said, look, I said, you don't like abortions, do you? He's like, absolutely not. And the other gentleman, I turned to him and I goes, I said, and you, you don't want to pay for them, do you? And he says, absolutely not. I said, then what are we fighting about? 
the point was not so much that I needed the pro-choice guy who was concerned about the economy and, and economic issues to agree that, you know, to come over and be a pro-life person or the pro-life person suddenly come over and take on the pro-choice position. What I needed them to, be, to agree or begin to see, and this is where what, what Mickey has talked about, is to find that little bit of a thread where you can begin to have a different conversation than the one you're prepared to have, where you're going to stand in the corner and fight and resist and, and lob you know, names at each other. And so in that moment where they kind of looked at each other and went, yeah, I guess that's kind of the case, yeah. The subject changed. It was no. There was. It was not that important to talk about that anymore because they realized, oh, okay, yeah, you don't want to pay for them. I don't want them. So, you know, hire your kids. And it, it's not that simple always. I know that, but you got to look at these moments, and you have to see, particularly in these times, that this the election is so much more was so much more than just about Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. It was really about Bernie Sanders, and it was really about, you know. Republicans and Democrats and, and, and these individuals who are out there who brought something else to the table that resonated with voters. And the parties now have to figure out how to really navigate this new water. It's bumpy, it's not calm, and that's because the voters want it that way. Tom is not changing that. I didn't change that as chairman. Pelosi and McConnell and Ryan have no impact on that. They're on those seas as well. And so you are the reason we are where we are. Not, not, you know, not the money. Jeb Bush had $150 million. Got his butt kicked. Hillary Clinton had a billion. Hello. It wasn't the money. It wasn't, it wasn't these, these hard edges. It was exactly what the voters wanted. And so now the political system, we just saw this in France. Who's the president of France? A guy with no political experience at 39 years old who's never held office, and he's not aligned with either of the major parties, which got kicked to the curb in the primary two weeks ago. They weren't even in the final running for president. Why? Because that's the way the people wanted it. So the political establishment now has to meet where the people are and then decide how you regrow the parties around this new environment. Michael said a number of things that uh, I, I think are important and interesting, and I agree with some of them. Uh, the Democratic Party needs to do a better job of making house calls. You know, I, I think we spend way too much money buying television ads and not enough money organizing. And... Uh, when you don't have a 12-month organizing capacity in place across America, you're just not listening to people. I believe in data analytics, and you need to have that modeling out there, but that modeling can't supplant good old-fashioned door knocking and listening because you just have your finger on the pulse of communities when you do that. One thing I would observe that I think is true for both the Republican and the Democratic Party, and I think it's a bad tendency for both, is uh, this tendency when you walk in a room uh, for some to say, uh, I'd like you to identify what kind of Republican you are, yeah. what kind of yeah. Democrat you are. Hi, I'm, I'm Tom Perez. I'm a you know, uh, progressive Democrat, or I'm a conservative Democrat. I'm a, I don't know what the word establishment means, because I think Ted Kennedy would have been an establishment Democrat under the definition right. of some. 
uh, Ted Kennedy was, the, in my mind, the chair of the accomplishments wing of the Democratic Party. He got stuff done. Uh, and that's why he has a museum of accomplishments uh, to, to, to talk about it. And, and I think what we have to do and what we're trying to do is move away from asking those questions, which are kind of loaded Rorschach mm -hmm. test kind mm -hmm. of questions, and ask the question, and this is the question to me that what it's all about, are you lifting people up? You know, when we did an overtime rule at the Labor Department, we were trying to lift up 10 million workers who'd been working 80 hours a week and they hadn't gotten a meaningful raise in years because the rules had been changed by folks in the Bush administration and in, in, in a way that gave all the leverage to employers and all uh, the leverage away from workers. When, when you bring together police departments and communities that have been torn apart by unrest, and I spent a good part of, part of my career doing that, you're lifting up both. When you don't ask those false choice kind of questions, and you know, when I hear people like uh, Donald Trump ask the question uh, in, in the police context, whose side are you on? The police or the community? I've been involved in this space for a long time, Mickey, and I know because frontline officers have told me time and time again, your most important currency as a police officer is the trust of the community. And so when we're asking that question, you know, are we lifting people up as opposed to bringing them down? You know, that's the question that we need to continue to ask. And um, all too frequently, you know, we get away from this. And I, I think when we summon our better angels, you know, when, when hope's on the ballot, as it was in 08, Democrats did pretty well. Um, you know, we live in a fear world right now. And there's a lot of understandable economic anxiety that people feel. And, and we didn't do a good enough job as Democrats of understanding that. And I'm not just talking about 2016. I'm talking about we're losing elections, you know, up and down the ballot. And, and that's why I talk about house calls. I talk about getting back to basics. You know, when the, when the water infrastructure, when your pipes corrode, it has public health and life-threatening consequences. And when your political infrastructure corrodes, it can have consequences up and down the ballot. So we're, we're engaged at the DNC in an infrastructure project, as well as a, a messaging project. You know, understanding um, what we should be doing, communicating that message, and building the infrastructure that enables that message to translate into results for Democrats. Yeah. Now, I was thinking about something that uh, Mike said. That um, One of the things I learned in Congress and, and that every politician knows is the worst thing that can happen is if you get all your supporters in the same room at the same time. Thanks for listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. If you like today's show, check out Universal Basic Income, Can It Renew Our Economy? The episode features author and former union leader Andy Stern. He thinks universal basic income is the key to solving problems like a loss of jobs in manufacturing. Find the show by searching Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes. Here's Mickey Edwards. So there's over 40% of Americans today call themselves independents. They don't want anything no, to do with either of your parties. Uh, is that the future? I mean, are, are political parties, you know, going to be a thing of the past? Because people, 
as you both have pointed out, for reasons that, uh, of what the parties have done uh, over the years, that the American people are kind of saying, we don't want this, where they're moving away from the party structure and more and more supporting, uh, you know, I'll, I'll pick the candidates one at a time, or I may lean this way, uh, but, but uh, you know, I, I now have, you know, I'm from Oklahoma, I represented Oklahoma, but uh, I have a house in Massachusetts, and I vote in Massachusetts. Uh, and they're the unenrolled voters, which is the way that uh, in Massachusetts we identify uh, independents, uh, outnumber either Republicans or Democrats. And that's, and that's, a, that's a growing trend, yeah. and I, I, I quite honestly think it's a good one. Um, when I was uh, state party chairman in Maryland, uh, one of the things uh, we did uh, for an election cycle was to open up uh, our primary to uh, independent voters. Why? Because as I articulated at the time, uh, they're voters. And you <laughs> imagine that. Um, it's a very good rationale. Yeah, I thought it made sense to me, you know. So, but more importantly, let's get them in the game. Uh, let's let's engage them. Why should they sit on the sidelines and watch from afar? Uh, and then you go, you know, trying to corral them for a general election. Uh, where they don't know anything about your candidates or they've learned something, you know, that is not very helpful to your side mm -hmm. about your candidate by the other team. So you want to engage them as much as possible. And so I've always been open to the idea of the more the merrier. And I think the country is now beginning to move a little bit more in that direction where they see the efficacy of having uh, someone outside the system challenge the status quo of the system. And the establishments, which is why that term has become such a pejorative term in the last couple of cycles, uh, in the minds of a lot of voters, is that thing which builds a wall to protect the interest of those inside the wall, behind the wall. Um, whether it's the moneyed interest, the political interest, um, all of those folks are in this little cabal together, and we're on the outside living with the consequences of their asininity, a word I just probably made up. But, <laughs> but the reality for a lot of these people goes back to what I was saying before, is that they're looking for ways to empower themselves because they're not getting that empowerment from their parties. Uh, and they're, they're angry, they're frustrated. I can speak very clearly about the Republican side. I can't tell you. Uh, how many folks, you know, um, have expressed over the years their concern and disdain for where the direction the party is going. A lot of people think the Tea Party, which occurred on, within the first few months of, of my watch as national chairman, was something that happened in 2009. No, baby, that was going on back to 2004. That, that seed was planted long before 2009 and 2010. Why? Because you're talking about people who basically had been lied to. Remember, remember I, I don't know how many of you attended, maybe you did, Jim, attended and covered the closing and shutting down of the Department of Education. Remember, we were going to shut that down. And we ran campaigns on closing the Department of Education. We ran campaigns on, oh, we're going to reverse Roe versus Wade. Give us a Supreme Court, right? And, you know, get, let, us get, let us get the leadership in the Senate and the House and the presidency. We're going to do these things, right? What happened? Those things didn't happen. Voters had relied on the promise that if I commit to you, I fund you, I vote for you, then you're going to go do and, and live up to the commitments that you said in this campaign.
when you were going to close down the Department of Education, when you were going to reverse Roe versus Wade, when you were going to push back on this move towards, you know, gay marriage and all of this other stuff socially, right? And at a certain point, the voters go, what the hell, am I stupid? None of this is happening. It, it's not happening. And what do they do? They respond in kind. And why was Donald Trump successful? And what is the one thing you hear about him even to this day? And despite all the crazy that's going on, what are his voters saying? He's doing what he said he was going to do. That matters to a lot of these constituents out here and how the parties now um, follow up. And this is going to be a challenge. I mean, you know, God love you, brother. This is going to be a real challenge because <laughs> the voters are restless and they will take from the, the national parties and give to themselves. And they will give to those who they feel really intone, invoke that independent spirit, who are willing to stand up and push back against the status quo, who are willing to lose an election for them. That's an important piece. They're willing to lose an election for them. And if that candidate or candidates emerge, watch out. Both parties will have a real challenge on their hand. And the system is designed, as you know, Mickey, to prevent third parties from really kind of growing here. Um, but I think the grassroots out there could have a different mindset in 2020, um, even beginning maybe in 2018. Look at some of these races and see how these candidates make the case um, uh, for the future. And you'll get a sense of those who are listening to where voters are and are looking to move in that space and those who are still playing the status quo because they want Tom's money. Um, and that's going to be a real challenge. Tom, well, you know, they want your money. I was, what are you with, uh, I was with Governor Hickenlooper of uh, Colorado uh, earlier this week, and we were having a similar conversation. I believe, and I've looked at the data recently in Colorado, but I think unaffiliated voters are now the largest uh, percentage mm -hmm. in Colorado. Uh, having said that, here's the reality. When you walk into a voting booth today, in most states, you know, New York has the working families line, they've got a number of other lines, but when you walk into the voting booth in most places, uh, you're going to vote for an R or a D. And, and that's why... I've been spending a lot of time in my first few months on the job, not simply speaking at Democratic Party dinners, but going out there in communities, you know, where I'm with uh, folks, the majority of whom are not registered Democrats. And I believe our key to success there is to make sure that we understand and, and, and we can persuade them that our values are your values. I mean, you have an EPA administrator who denies that climate change is a problem. <laughs> Um, you know, and, and that is so contrary to what the majority of the American people think. And, and I'll tell you, I'm the parent of three millennials. That, that's just a foreign concept to them, this notion that climate change is a hoax. Climate change is a reality for them. And so when we lead with our values and, and, and we're there side by side with them, um, I'd love for them to get back into the Democratic Party fold, and my job is to earn that trust. My job also in the short run is to make sure they understand on the issues that you care about the most, we are aligned with you. And, and this is an area where I disagree with, with Michael, and, and, and this is going to be a challenge moving ahead. I, I agree with Michael that what we have to do as a Democratic Party is not simply say what we're against, 
and what Donald Trump is doing wrong. I totally agree that we have to articulate what we are for and what we will do and what we are doing. Where I think the challenge is very interesting, and, and this is you know, one of those to-be-determined moments, right, right. is that Michael said, well, Donald Trump, in the eyes of some voters, is doing exactly what he said. Well, I'm not sure about that. Donald Trump said that I'm going to bring you health care that uh, ensures that everyone has access to health care cheaper and better. Man, if I've got a pre-existing condition, I sure don't feel like it's cheaper and better. Donald Trump said on day one, I will label China a currency manipulator. Did he do that? No. And, and you know what happened? Why that didn't happen? Well, you know... His um, family business had been trying for years to get trademarks in China. They were denied, denied, denied. And guess what just happened? They got them. And I was just talking to some steel workers. They, some of them voted for Donald Trump because they wanted change. Losing your health care is not the change they were voting for. You know, business as usual with China. You know, China, the... China overproduces steel. And this isn't something that Donald Trump caused. This has been going on for a long time. Their overproduction capacity exceeds how much steel is being produced in the United States, Canada, Japan, and all of Europe combined. What does that mean? They are exporting their low-cost steel and they're exporting their unemployment to the United States. Donald Trump said he was going to do something about that. You know who else is a big steel producer, dumping steel in the United States? Russia. <laughs> you think he's going to stand up to him? So part of the challenge moving forward, and, and again, this is a to-be-determined challenge. Get, he he promised saying. change. Is this just, the change you were looking for that, uh, when you took a flyer on the guy? But, and again, uh, uh, we need to not only articulate what he's done, but we again need to articulate... Uh, what we stand for. I, I appreciate everything you just said, and, and factually, you're spot on. All right? But 40% of the electorate out there are in total opposition with what you just said. They don't see it that way. So what you've got to do is put on their sunglasses, eyeglasses, or water contact lenses and understand what it is they see. And if you I, I think, don't... I think, Mike, it's 34%. Well, th so, well yeah. it, let's, okay, let's be fair. Let's do the range, 34 to 40. The numbers, is, it, depending on what poll you're looking at. But it's a significant number of people in pockets of the country you are not winning in. Mm -hmm. All right? So I appreciate the East Coast, West Coast view of America. But the reality is where moms and pops are in the middle of that. And that was Hillary Clinton's problem. That was Bernie Sanders' strength. That was uh, the problem you're going to have negotiating going forward because your progressive wing is making it very clear. We you used the term before, Mickey, litmus tests. Same problem we saw on the right with the litmus test. I had people come to me and actually wanted to in, in, in codify a litmus test in the party platform. I was like, hell no, we're not doing that. I'm not going to stand at the door with a clipboard and go, well, are you this? Are you that? Are you this? But that's where the extremes want to go in the conversation. Uh, and the question becomes, how do you have that discussion when you have this group pushing in this way and everybody else is over here? So mm -hmm. I appreciate everything you just said. But the question becomes, how do you translate that into something that moves me off of where I am with Trump? 
Because that's what you're going to have to do if you think you're going to win in 2018 and 2020. Good luck. You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Today's episode, Finding Common Ground, features Michael Steele, Tom Perez, and Mickey Edwards. Steele served as chairman of the Republican National Committee from 2009 to 2011. Tom Perez was labor secretary before becoming the Democratic National Committee chair in February. Mickey Edwards leads the Rodell Fellowship in Public Leadership at the Aspen Institute. He served in Congress from 1977 to 1992. Here's the rest of their conversation. I have one more quick question that I want to ask that you can hopefully answer very briefly. We're talking, both of you agree with this, you know, that what we want to do is find a place where we can be more American than we are Republican, more American than we are Democrat, where we can talk to each other, where we can be civil with each other, where, where if there is an area for common ground, we can find it. Do you see a path forward? Can we get there? Well, I think the one, of, one of the most important things we have to do to enable us to get there is engage in uh, redistricting reform. I mean, you look at the U.S. House of Representatives right now, and uh, it has been so gerrymandered uh, that there, there's no room for Mickey Edwards. I mean, you, you were once called a conservative Republican. Uh, that is uh, not the Mickey Edwards of, yeah. of uh, 2017. Uh, it's the same Mickey Edwards, but the definitions have changed. Yeah, right, but uh, you know, we need you know, the, the, yeah. the partisan gerrymandering that we see across this country. Um, until and unless we address that, uh, I think it's going to be very hard, because there is no incentive in the U.S. House of Representatives to come to the middle. And, and the best example of that is immigration reform. In a bipartisan fashion in 2014, the Senate passed an immigration bill. Was it a perfect bill? No. Uh, was it a good bill? Yes. And it came to the House, and it never got a vote. And um, one of the things that happened, and, and it was on the verge of getting a vote, and you know what happened? Eric Cantor lost, unexpectedly, to Dave Bratt. And it scared the bejesus out of John Boehner. And he said, no, I can't bring this up for a vote. And uh, why? Because my people from the right are going to get a challenge from the right. And so you can't bring it up. If it had been brought up, there is no doubt in my mind that a majority of the U.S. House of Representatives would have supported the bipartisan Senate bill. There's no doubt in my mind. Same thing with minimum wage. You know, there's no, minimum wage has always been a bipartisan issue. Every president except two, uh, until Barack Obama, since FDR signed the first Fair Labor Standards Act, has signed an increase in the minimum wage. Um, but it didn't happen this time. And until and unless, Mickey, it seems to me that we, we can do that, uh, I, I think it's going to be a real problem. And then this, the second issue is that, uh, you know, when you don't know someone very well, it's a lot easier to demonize them. And my observation in a lot of places is that the folks who are trying to do the public good don't know each other very well. Michael and I can have spirited disagreements but we know each other. And so 
you know, you, 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 it, it makes a difference. You know, back in the day, you know, you knew your colleagues' uh, spouses, and you knew their children, and, and when they had a death in the family, uh, you went to the funeral, and uh, when there was a, a disability rights bill, uh, you know, that there might have been a person who you didn't think would intuitively support it, but you knew their family and you knew they had a kid with a disability, and it changed their perspective on it. That stuff just isn't there anymore. You come Tuesday, you leave Thursday, and you, <laughs> you know, do call time for some of Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And um, that's not what the Founding Fathers envisioned. And, and, and Citizens United has, I think, you know, poisoned the well inexorably. Um, I mean, you, you look at the dark money that's going into uh, these races, and uh, it's just hard to compete. I don't think that corporations are people, and uh, I, I think that has been one of the most poisonous things, and, and unfortunately with this court, that ain't going to change. Yeah, I, I agree. Mike, can we, can we get back to... Uh you know, civil conversation and bipartisanship? Oh, I think we can. Uh, you know, we all just take a few Xanax and have uh, <laughs> a couple of gin and tonics. We'll be good. <laughs> I, 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 I want to I start with something. Those, those will be out here in the hall. No, after. There. <laughs> I want to start with something that Tom said. So, you know, I, I really appreciate what you're saying about the gerrymandering and the redistricting. But, uh, you know, let's be honest, you guys weren't complaining about gerrymandering when you held the house for 40 years, all right? So it's a, you know, that's part of it. But I definitely agree with you um, that now that uh, you're out more than you're in, uh, and this goes true for both parties, um, there is this sense that something in the system has to change. And I think that that's important. Um, not just at the federal level with House seats, but you see it also in, in the state's uh, state legislative races as well. Uh, a number of governors right now around the country, I think, are taking a very forward look at this argument in this discussion. And they're saying, um, let's have independent bodies uh, without elected officials who have a vested interest in whether or not they keep their seat uh, sitting at the table. Let's instead have citizens have uh, former judges, have uh, uh, maybe former elected uh, individuals who understand the politics of it uh, decide, places like California and elsewhere. I know uh, my governor, Hogan, um, is very much uh, in Maryland looking at um, creating a new environment there, and hopefully that's something uh, I'll speak to you as a Marylander, you can get behind uh, in, in sort of leveling the playing field um, so that we don't have pterodactyl-shaped uh, congressional districts like we do in the 3rd Congressional District of Maryland. Um, and, that's, and that's the reality uh, of where we are. Um, and so you either want to change that system or you don't. Well, you uh, either want to yeah, change that system right. or you don't. Let me repeat myself. <laughs> you either want to change that system or you don't. So don't go complaining to politicians about the, you know, the re-election rates and don't go complaining about uh, how, you know, dark money and all kinds of colored money in races. If you want to change the system, you will. He can't do it by himself. 
I couldn't do it by myself, and you're damn sure there's not a member on Capitol Hill who's going to change it because it protects their interests. So if you want to change the system, you change it. Because the American people have the ultimate power to make government do what they want government to do. If you stop believing that, which a lot of folks have, and you get fat and lazy and comfortable by going to the voting booth, and you said it, just pulling the DNR because that's what you've always pulled, then you're going to get what you got. That's the reality of it. So get behind those efforts that are looking to change the system from the ground up. Start lead on those efforts that look to change the system from the ground up. Otherwise, shut up. I'm, I'm going to take the last couple of seconds just to say this. It goes back to something Mike said. If all of your friends are fellow Democrats, or if all of your friends are fellow Republicans, and if you spend your time watching Fox or MSNBC, and you, you and your friends agree on everything, you're the problem. Start talking to people who disagree with you, understand them, learn them, love them, you know, get, let's get back so that we have more uh, of the way Tom and Mike are able to relate to each other as friends, that they, they can have their disagreements in a respectful, honest way. That's what the Aspen Institute stands for, you know, and, and it's the key to the future is let's stop dividing ourselves and then complaining about the fact that our leaders are divided. So, Tom and Mike, thank you so much. Thank you. Tom Perez leads the Democratic National Committee. He was elected to that role earlier this year. Michael Steele served as RNC chair from 2009 to 2011. He's now CEO of the Steele Group. Mickey Edwards is a vice president at the Aspen Institute. Previously, he taught at Harvard and Princeton. Their conversation was held in May. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Follow the Aspen Institute year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Institute. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of our Public Programs. Thanks for joining me. Mm -hmm.